This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ian Bartholomew. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Six, Part Nine. The obstinate and imperious nature of the king gave great advantages to those who advised him to be firm, to yield nothing, and to make himself feared. One state maxim had taken possession of his small understanding, and was not to be dislodged by reason. To reason, indeed, he was not in the habit of attending. His mode of arguing, if it is to be so called, was one not uncommon among dull and stubborn persons, who are accustomed to be surrounded by their inferiors. He asserted a proposition, and, as often as wiser people ventured respectfully to show that it was erroneous, he asserted it again, in exactly the same words, and conceived that, by doing so, he at once disposed of all objections. I will make no concession, he often repeated. My father made concessions, and he was beheaded. If it were true that concession had been fatal to Charles I, a man of sense would have known that a single experiment is not sufficient to establish a general rule, even in sciences much less complicated than the science of government, that, since the beginning of the world, no two political experiments were ever made of which all the conditions were exactly alike, and that the only way to learn civil prudence from history is to examine and compare an immense number of cases. But, if the single instance on which the king relied proved anything, it proved that he was in the wrong. There can be little doubt that, if Charles had frankly made to the short Parliament, which met in the spring of 1640, but one half of the concessions which he made, a few months later, to the long Parliament, he would have lived and died a powerful king. On the other hand, there can be no doubt whatever that, if he had refused to make any concession to the long Parliament, and had resorted to arms in defence of the ship-money and of the star-chamber, he would have seen, in the hostile ranks, Hyde and Falkland side by side with Hollis and Hampton. But in truth, he would not have been able to resort to arms, for nor twenty cavaliers would have joined his standard. It was to his large concessions alone that he owed the support of that great body of noblemen and gentlemen who fought so long and so gallantly in his cause. But it would have been useless to represent these things to James. Another fatal delusion had taken possession of his mind, and was never dispelled till it had ruined him. He firmly believed that, do what he might, the members of the Church of England would act up to their principles. It had, he knew, been proclaimed from ten thousand pulpits. It had been solemnly declared by the University of Oxford that even tyranny as frightful as that of the most depraved of the Caesars did not justify subjects in resisting the royal authority. And hence, 
he was weak enough to conclude that the whole body of Tory gentlemen and clergymen would let him plunder, oppress, and insult them without lifting an arm against him. It seems strange that any man should have passed his fiftieth year without discovering that people sometimes do what they think wrong. And James had only to look into his own heart for abundant proof that even a strong sense of religious duty will not always prevent frail human beings from indulging their passions in defiance of divine laws, and at the risk of awful penalties. He must have been conscious that, though he thought adultery sinful, he was an adulterer. But nothing could convince him that any man who professed to think rebellion sinful would ever, in any extremity, be a rebel. The Church of England was, in his view, a passive victim, which he might, without danger, outrage and torture at his pleasure. Nor did he ever see his error till the universities were preparing to coin their plate for the purpose of supplying the military chest of his enemies, and till a bishop, long renowned for loyalty, had thrown aside his cassock, girt on a sword, and taken the command of a regiment of insurgents. In these fatal follies the king was artfully encouraged by a minister who had been an exclusionist, and who still called himself a Protestant, the Earl of Sunderland. The motives and conduct of this unprincipled politician have often been misrepresented. He was, in his own lifetime, accused by the Jacobites of having, even before the beginning of the reign of James, determined to bring about a revolution in favour of the Prince of Orange, and of having, with that view, recommended a succession of outrages on the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of the realm. This idle story has been repeated down to our own day by ignorant writers. But no well-informed historian, whatever might be his prejudices, has condescended to adopt it, for it rests on no evidence whatever, and scarcely any evidence would convince reasonable men that Sunderland deliberately incurred guilt and infamy in order to bring about a change by which it was clear that he could not possibly be a gainer, and by which, in fact, he lost immense wealth and influence. Nor is there the smallest reason for resorting to so strange a hypothesis, for the truth lies on the surface. Crooked as this man's course was, the law which determined it was simple. His conduct is to be ascribed to the alternate influence of cupidity and fear on a mind highly susceptible of both these passions, and quick-sighted rather than far-sighted. He wanted more power and more money. More power he could obtain only at Rochester's expense, and the obvious way to obtain power at Rochester's expense was to encourage the dislike which the king felt for Rochester's moderate counsels. Money could be most easily and most largely obtained from the court at Versailles, and Sunderland was eager to sell himself to that court. He had no jovial generous vices. He cared little for wine or for beauty, but he desired riches with an ungovernable and insatiable desire. The passion for play raged in him without measure, and had not been tamed by ruinous losses. His hereditary fortune was ample. 
he had long filled lucrative posts, and had neglected no art which could make them more lucrative. But his ill-luck at the hazard table was such that his estates were daily becoming more and more encumbered. In the hope of extricating himself from his embarrassments, he betrayed to Barillon all the schemes averse to France which had been meditated in the English cabinet, and hinted that a secretary of state could in such times render services for which it might be wise in Louis to pay largely. The ambassador told his master that six thousand guineas were the smallest gratification that could be offered to so important a minister. Louis consented to go as high as twenty-five thousand crowns, equivalent to more than five thousand six hundred pounds sterling. It was agreed that Sunderland should receive this sum yearly, and that he should, in return, exert all his influence to prevent the reassembling of the Parliament. He joined himself therefore to the Jesuitical cabal, and made so dexterous an use of the influence of that cabal, that he was appointed to succeed Halifax in the high dignity of Lord President, without being required to resign from the far more active and lucrative post of secretary. He felt, however, that he could never hope to obtain paramount influence in the court while he was supposed to belong to the established church. All religions were the same to him. In private circles, indeed, he was in the habit of talking with profane contempt of the most sacred things. He therefore determined to let the king have the delight and glory of effecting a conversion. Some management, however, was necessary. No man is utterly without regard for the opinion of his fellow-creatures, and even Sunderland, though not very sensible to shame, flinched from the infamy of public apostasy. He played his part with rare adroitness. To the world he showed himself as a Protestant. In the royal closet he assumed the character of an earnest inquirer after truth, who was almost persuaded to declare himself a Roman Catholic, and who, while waiting for fuller illumination, was disposed to render every service in his power to the professors of the old faith. James, who was never very discerning, and who in religious matters was absolutely blind, suffered himself, notwithstanding all that he had seen of human knavery, of the knavery of courtiers as a class, and of the knavery of Sunderland in particular, to be duped into the belief that divine grace had touched the most false and callous of human hearts. During many months the wily minister continued to be regarded at court as a promising catechumen, without exhibiting himself to the public in the character of a renegade. He early suggested to the king the expediency of appointing a secret committee of Roman Catholics to advise on all matters affecting the interests of their religion. This committee met sometimes at Chiffinch's lodgings, and sometimes at the official apartments of Sunderland, who, though still nominally a Protestant, was admitted to all its deliberations, and soon obtained a decided ascendancy over the other members. Every Friday the Jesuitical cabal dined with the secretary. The conversation at table was free, and the weaknesses of the prince whom the confederates hoped to manage were not spared. To Peter, Sunderland promised a cardinal's hat, 
to Castlemaine a splendid embassy to Rome, to Dover a lucrative command in the guards, and to Tyconnel high employment in Ireland. Thus bound together by the strongest ties of interest, these men addressed themselves to the task of subverting the treasurer's power. There were two Protestant members of the cabinet who took no decided part in the struggle. Jeffreys was at this time tortured by a cruel internal malady which had been aggravated by intemperance. At a dinner which a wealthy alderman gave to some of the leading members of the government, the Lord Treasurer and the Lord Chancellor were so drunk that they stripped themselves almost stark naked, and were with difficulty prevented from climbing up a signpost to drink His Majesty's health. The pious Treasurer escaped with nothing but the scandal of the debauch but the Chancellor brought on a violent fit of his complaint. His life was for some time thought to be in serious danger. James expressed great uneasiness at the thought of losing a minister who suited him so well, and said, with some truth, that the loss of such a man could not be easily repaired. Jeffreys, when he became convalescent, promised his support to both the contending parties, and waited to see which of them would prove victorious. Some curious proofs of his duplicity are still extant. It has been already said that the two French agents who were then resident in London had divided the English courts between them. Bonrepaux was constantly with Rochester, and Barillon lived with Sunderland. Louis was informed in the same week by Bonrepaux that the Chancellor was entirely with the Treasurer, and by Barillon that the Chancellor was in league with the Secretary. Godolphin, Cautious and taciturn, did his best to preserve neutrality. His opinions and wishes were undoubtedly with Rochester, but his office made it necessary for him to be in constant attendance on the Queen, and he was naturally unwilling to be on bad terms with her. There is indeed reason to believe that he regarded her with an attachment more romantic than often finds place in the hearts of veteran statesmen. And circumstances, which it is now necessary to relate, had thrown her entirely into the hands of the Jesuitical cabal. End of part nine.